0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In 1701, a wealthy young widow named Dame Mary Grosvenor woke up in a room at the Hotel Castile in Paris and found a strange man in her bed. The heiress to a huge London estate, she'd struggled with bouts of unstable behaviour and may have been ensnared by a pair of opportunistic brothers eager to capitalise on the plight of a grieving woman. A new book, Inheritance, The Lost History of Mary Davies, tells the unexpected story of what happened to Mary and the strange, scandalous court case that followed. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, was joined by its author, Leo Hollis.
1: So, Leo, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And we're here to talk about your new book, Inheritance. So I thought that a great place to start would be for you to tell us, what is The Inheritance? Why why that for the title of the book?
2: Well, The Inheritance is a plot of land. um, And uh, the, the main character, if you like, in the book is a a woman called Mary Davies. Uh, now, she's often mentioned in uh, sort of histories of London, um, but she's often mentioned um, for uh, uh, unexpected reasons. Um, one of the stories that many historians have told is, is the fact that that she married at the age of 12. She was a very young heiress, um, and uh, she was married off uh, to a man called Sir Thomas Grosner while still uh, a teenager, Um, and the stories then continue, and uh, uh, the end result of that uh, uh, marriage is the development of Mayfair and Grosvenor Square, and some of the most important um, developments in uh, early 18th century London. However, I discovered that um, there was another story about Mary, uh, a story that has been overlooked, and I felt was rich and fascinating and needed to be told um, and this is uh, where what the inheritance is. So the inheritance is is the land but it's also Mary herself.
1: And Before we come on to Mary's story in more detail um, one of the parts of your book that I really enjoy is you really give such an amazing view of what London is like and how it's changing as a city. It's this period of huge growth um, and change at the time can you tell me how the city is changing in the 17th century?
2: So I'm fascinated by 17th century London, um, particularly that period um, after the Civil War. So Restoration London all the way up to the beginning of um, uh, the 18th century. This is a well-known area of, of plague, of fire, of the rebuilding, um, and, you know, of icons such as St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, In my previous book, which is a book called The Phoenix, I looked at how London was rebuilt during that period. Uh, And it is really the moment, in my opinion at least, that London became the first modern city. It totally transformed not just the way that a city looked, but the way that it worked, the way that people lived in it. And so uh, uh, in many ways, The Inheritance is a a book that covers in some ways the same period, but it does it through a completely different lens. Uh, So you you think that um, uh, the sort of city is growing massively after the great fire it is growing beyond the burnt neighborhoods into new suburbs so the what were then sort of suburbs farmland that was being turned into these new uh, neighborhoods and a different type of housing and a different way of living was being developed in these new plots so you saw the the rise of the the terraced house as well as a new kind of domestic arrangements um uh And so London becomes this massive city from having been quite a sort of European backwater. And it's also at the same time you get a sort of change within um, the sort of social structure of the city. It becomes less a royal city and more a city that is dominated by the merchant classes. And this again is reflected in the way that the the city develops. So it's a period of extraordinary change. Uh, We haven't seen sort of change on this scale uh, uh, until perhaps the 19th century when again it expanded massively. Um, uh, And that's why I find it so extraordinarily fascinating.
1: So you mentioned Plague and the Fire of London, and these both have a huge impact on the city. Can you tell us a bit more about this?
2: Yes. I mean, they are some of the sort of most dramatic but also uh, important events that happened within the sort of restoration city. So the plague in 1665, which emerges first in the kind of, uh, the sort of slightly slum areas just on the edge of the city, but very quickly over the course of that summer feed through the rest of the city. Um, uh, the human impact of the plague, I think uh, is, is is often um, sort of forgotten that one in three Londoners um, uh, uh, were sort of cut down by this disease. It also had, I think, a huge social impact um, in that uh, uh, you know it was uh, a a disease that, in the main, uh, attacked the poor because, on one hand, the rich just disappeared; they left and went to their estates, and so in some ways the poor were abandoned within the city. Um, and uh, there was very little that the sort of medical or the religious community could do to combat this disease. They didn't know where it came from, uh, and so in some ways the, 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 the virus totally transformed the sort of social fabric of the city. Uh, the fire which occurred, uh, you know, in September 1666, so, so little under a year later, transformed the physical fabric of the city um so the, the burnt area of the city um uh, uh uh had to be rebuilt and it's my argument that the, the fire uh, uh was the in some ways the sort of transformative moment within this period in terms of uh, what it did to uh, the physical uh organization of the city but it also transformed the way that you know householding and uh, ownership uh, was was defined it redefined what should be built and how it should be built it also transformed the construction business that was then by you know 10 15 years later would then go and build the suburbs that became soho and bloomsbury and uh, you know the outer reaches of the city and started in some ways those sort of metropolitan rings around the city that in some ways sort of still continue uh, today. Um, it changed the way that people, uh, you know, the kind of houses that were being built and how they were being built. Uh, and it also uh, perhaps the most invisible impact was uh, the way that it was being paid for. So, you know, finance, banking, the, the, the development of leaseholds and mortgages are as important as, uh, you know, the development of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the technologies of construction.
1: And as well as um, changing physically, there's also changing ideas. And one in particular is to do with this idea of private property. Now, that's a phrase that a 21st century listener is very familiar with. But in the year 1700, what did it mean to own something
2: well, this is a sort of a fascinating question. we assume that private property is something that has, in some ways, always existed; that it has been um, uh, the way that we have dealt with land and with property uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But what my book tries to show is that that this was this has a history. It has a moment when a private property was sort of formed as an idea, and then became absolutely central to what a city was and to what uh, Uh, The nation was. And so uh, this happens in terms of law. It it happens then in terms of the way that um, uh, sort of social relations change. So, uh, you know, my book looks at an heiress and how her relationship with the land uh, is changed is changed. So in many ways, her body and her her, her inheritance, the, the plot of land that she that she owns, become one and the same. So private property is this thing that we we assume has always been around. But uh, to unpack that and to sort of see it as contingent, I think totally transforms the way that we look at the city.
1: And coming on now to look at the heiress, to look at Mary in more detail, How does her land come to be her inheritance? How does it pass down to her?
2: Well, the land was originally um, bought by um, a financier, a man called uh, Hugh Audley, um, uh, who who bought it in 1619. And on his death in 1662, he hands it on to um, somebody who works in his office, who's also a family relation, a man called Alexander Davies, um, uh, who starts developing... Part of the land and turning it into a sort of new housing uh, sort of scheme down by um, Horse Ferry, so very close to Westminster. However, he dies uh, in uh, the Great Plague in 1665, leaving uh, everything to his um, six month old baby. Mary. Uh, And so as a babe, she uh, inherits this extraordinary um, sort of swathe of land that goes all the way from the Thames up to what was then Tyburn or Oxford Street. So at the time of the inheritance, it was outside, as it were, the, the, the development of the city. But over the course of her life, her land became more and more valuable until at the end, it was then right on the edge of the city.
1: And how does her gender affect her inheritance?
2: In every single way. Um, I mean, if Mary had been a baby boy, uh, there wouldn't be a story to tell, almost. Um, But on every single level, the fact that uh, Mary uh, was born a daughter, um, uh, in some ways, determines almost every moment of her life afterwards. So, very quickly, she uh, she becomes a commodity on the on on the marriage market of London, um, uh, and uh, her her mother um, does a deal when she's ten. First with uh, a Lord Berkeley, uh, that deal falls through, um, but two years later she is then brought to the altar at uh, Saint Clement's Danes and marries Sir Thomas Grosvenor. At that moment, her inheritance becomes uh, Sir Thomas's property. Um, And she has, uh, as it were, sort of nothing but a wife's rights um, to his property. Uh, And that is the way that it continues until he dies in 1700. And then the property, in some ways, returns back to Mary. And that is when um, uh, the drama that we'll get onto um, uh, occurs.
1: Mm, and this is something that I want to talk about: is is widowhood. Um, Mary's mother loses her husband, and Mary loses her husband as well. Um, but in the 17th century, being a widow did have benefits, didn't it? What what could you do as a woman if you were a widow?
2: Well, you could own property. I mean, the 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 laws of couverture uh, sort of existed. F- for the marriage period, but a uh, an unmarried woman and a widow had legal rights as property owners. They had, in some ways, direct ownership of what was then called the widow's third, or a portion. So uh, they had at least a third of the estate under their own name uh, in order to sort of uh, help them survive um, uh, their own widowhood. Uh, there was also a jointure, so an annual Uh, income that was guaranteed, uh, usually as part of the sort of marriage negotiations. Um, But if you think that um, uh, uh, the, I suppose, the cultural and the historical sort of position of the widow, um, uh, often they were sort of portrayed as people who uh, uh, were fascinated in property and maintaining the estate and so you see in lots of restoration dramas a kind of uh, a widow as a comic character who is desperately accumulating and preserving uh, their wealth and fortune Um, or uh, a widow is somebody who's vulnerable Um, so somebody who uh, is the the prey of um, uh, predatory Young men or um, uh, people in search of a new fortune.
1: So, rewinding slightly here. um, So, while Thomas Grosvenor is still alive, Mary makes a very monumental decision, and she converts to Roman Catholicism. Why was this such a contentious decision to make at this time?
2: So, I think the thing to know about um, sort of Mary is that she marries at twelve. Um, And she stays in London for three years until she is 15, so until um, her age of consent. And then she moves up to go and live with Sir Thomas Gravesner uh, in their new estate, Eaton Hall, um, just outside Chester. During this period, and they're married for something like 15 years there is almost no evidence of uh uh sort of mary's day-to-day life we don't know what's going on inside her head uh, we can only guess through the report of others uh, you know how she's dealing with being a wife being a mother um uh, and uh you know being a mistress of the of a huge estate uh there is this account that uh Perhaps in her sort of late teens, early 20s, um, just before um, James II uh, takes the throne, uh, Mary converts to Catholicism. Um, uh, And this is a hugely monumental um, decision, uh, particularly for such a young woman to make uh, uh, on her own. Um, It goes against her family. Um, uh, back in London, uh, her grandfather was a, a sort of leading Anglican um, vicar. Uh, it goes against her husband, who uh, also has a sort of prominent public role as a kind of local grandee and and uh, a sort of staunch Protestant. Uh, so this decision seems almost like sort of lightning out of the blue, and it's very very difficult to sort of uh, uh, to sort of work out why she did it, but one gets a sort of sense of a young woman trying to find her place in the world. Uh, and so, you know, who is she talking to? What communities is uh, has welcomed her into Chester? And and you can sort of see that there are connections and there are Catholic families around Chester who, who have welcomed her. Um, uh, and within the sort of debates of the period, um, uh, you know, Catholicism despite the fact that it is a, um, a persecuted religion, also has uh, sort of huge attractions to a young woman. Um, there are rituals and there are different ways of living that, that that perhaps allow a woman to have sort of a different sort of social role. Um, and so it's one has to sort of, in some ways, sort of read the smoke signals rather than actually sort of, uh, sort of be able to read any document. Um, but it, it, is, it is revealing, and I think what it does show about, about Mary is, is a sort of strength of character. Uh, and, and once she has made this decision, she sticks with it. And uh, you know, in many ways, that, 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 that is the most revealing thing about her during this period.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: What is revealed is is the doctor stands in the dock and sort of says, actually, I never saw Mary. I was only told about her condition. And yet I still prescribed the, the laudanum and the bleeding. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the
1: best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. And there's a figure that she meets as her decision to convert, who is called Ludwig Fenwick. Can you tell us who he was?
2: So after that, she after she converted to um, uh, Catholicism, uh, Mary and her husband, Sir Thomas, in some ways they have to negotiate, um, uh, uh, you know, how to deal with this issue. Um, so it's decided that the uh, children uh, will remain Protestant however uh, uh, mary will be allowed to conduct uh, certain sort of catholic masses and and uh, you know rituals uh, in the family home as long as it's done quietly so it it is uh, 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 at some point during this period uh, she hires a chaplain so in some ways a sort of a personal confessor um who's a benedictine monk a, a, a british benedictine monk called uh, Ludwig fenwick and we hope and we assume that uh you know he works closely with her um he's a sort of confidant he is a spiritual uh, advisor to her but uh his role in the family overall and uh you know his position within the sort of the wider uh, sort of state is never clearly um, uh, uh, explained. What does become apparent is when Sir Thomas dies in 1700, so when Mary is around 35, uh, Ludwig Fenwick becomes incredibly influential and takes uh, Mary under his wing uh, and they start planning um, a, a journey away from England.
1: And we'll be coming onto that journey in just a moment. Before we discuss that and what happens next, there's a really big theme of your book that I wanted to ask you a few questions about, which is madness. Um, in this period, there's an increasing focus on rationalism and reason, but there's also a focus on the opposite of that, unreason and madness. How do attitudes towards madness change in England in Mary's lifetime?
2: So there is there is a later accusation that uh, Mary might be mad uh, and uh, we will go on to explain why that is uh, uh, you know pertinent to her life story um but uh, what's really interesting is is setting those accusations within the sort of wider context of uh, sanity or insanity or uh, you know where the insane um, uh, sort of lived and worked, uh, and uh, within within sort of English society at that time, much of the debates, and most of the history that we have about this is very influenced by the work of Michel Foucault, um, the, the French sort of historian and post structural thinker, who who makes an argument that from this period, uh, what we see is a great confinement, which is that we sort of see the start of uh, the mad being separated and othered from the sane society, and put into asylums or, you know, excised from everyday life. Um, Foucault's uh, argument is highly contentious. And uh, in many ways, the, um, uh, the evidence doesn't stack up, at least for the British example. Um, you know, there weren't uh, asylums until uh, the 18th sort of century, uh, apart from, you know, charitable organisations like Bedlam instead what you have is on the one hand you have this scientific revolution which is highlighting the importance of reason as 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 the core of of of, of human um, sort of genius and on the other hand you you have this this transformation of of uh uh you know the mad or the uh, the uh, the unsocial um uh, as a as a sort of in some ways a kind of sort of social class um this is still being looked after by the community so uh, you know if a um uh, a person was considered to be unfit or you know in need of help that help usually came from the parish or from a sort of a local charitable organization this is changing somewhat um but 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 still uh, uh one is uh in some ways defined by not by one's madness but but what by one's Um, ability to look after oneself. I think the other thing that is going on is, you know, in the pre-Civil War period, uh, the emphasis was very much on uh, sort of questions of melancholia. Uh, And you have Richard Burton's very famous book from the 1620s, which is trying to anatomize uh, what melancholia is um, uh, as the sort of key form of madness and, and where it comes from, and uh, if anyone has a, has a, has a chance to read the anatomy of uh, 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 melancholia, it is extraordinary the range of uh, stimuli um, that that that, that uh, Burton um, uh, uh, looks at. Uh, but again, this is somewhat sort of changing over this period, and uh, people are starting to sort of think, is madness in the brain, and if so should we be cutting into the brain and seeing how it works alternatively there are other people sort of saying, well should we look be looking at other parts of the body as the source of this sort of imbalance, if you like um, and, and people start looking at nerves and, and uh, other kinds, forms of sort of uh, uh, anatomy as 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 an explanation of behavior and then i think uh, as a sort of uh sort of a final strand that is coming through here is 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 the sort of question of gender um uh, uh that uh you know in the 17th century it was mostly uh men who were who were sort of condemned to be uh, sort of mad or were considered to be mad. Um, but slowly through the 18th century, it becomes increasingly a female malady, if you like. Um, and and that is a significant change. Um, obviously, all interpretations of madness during this time come through people looking at the afflicted. It's very rare that you actually get accounts from the people who are feeling uh, either melancholia or, or mania, and explaining their behaviour. So there is always going to be um, uh, 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 this idea that, that, that madness is perceived; it's never uh, actually, uh, you know, a, a personal uh, explanation. And that's going to become uh, crucial when it comes to uh, uh, the sort of uh, the, the legal debates over uh, whether Mary was mad or not in her life.
1: And what episodes in Mary's life did people perceive to be madness?
2: Well, I think um, uh, there are a number of accounts that comes out in a, in, in a later court case, um, uh, in which uh, on one occasion um, she uh, tried to escape from the estate from um, uh, Eaton Hall, uh, and she had to be picked up and 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 brought back into the house by uh, uh, Sir Thomas. And then that evening, she tries to throw herself out of a window. uh, And as a result, um, uh, she is given a nurse and and someone actually sort of sits outside the window to make sure that that she doesn't attempt her escape uh, again. On another occasion, um, uh, she started to uh, sort of see phantoms and witches in her bedroom uh in another occasion she uh she, she's decided to break all the china uh I, I in the house um and then there's, there's another tragic um uh uh uh, uh sort of a, a account that comes when somebody goes to visit her and she just sits in the room sort of weeping and just shredding her clothes and you can you can s- interpret this uh because this is something that has 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 sort of been seen to be one of the signatures of of a particular kind of sort of bipolar uh uh uh, uh sort of condition however it's impossible to really define her madness um uh, uh you know because it always comes through other people's eyes and it always comes from a, a distance of sort of 300 years or so uh you know she could be grieving uh she lost two sons during this period. Um, uh, and uh, despite what many historians sort of say about, um, uh, you know, a parent's love for for their young children, um, she could have felt this deeply. Uh, she could also be feeling, you know, incredibly impotent as, uh, uh, you know, a, a young woman sort of stuck in, in a situation that is outside her control. There are so many other ways of trying to sort of think this through that it to call it just mania or just madness, I think, is 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 perhaps too prescriptive.
1: And after the death of Sir Thomas, when she travels to the continent with um, the priest Fenwick, what happens when she reaches the continent?
2: So this is this is uh, in in many ways the the part of the story which I think is absolutely central to. To the book, um, but it's also the bit that's left out of all the other history books. This is the the, the lost history uh, that, that 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 that's uh, uh, you know I think is the true heart of of her story. So she becomes a widow, and uh, she uh, decides very quickly uh, with uh, with Fenwick that they would go travelling to Europe. In particular, they would go to Paris, uh, perhaps to see the exiled uh, James II, we don't know, and then on to Rome, where there was a jubilee, um, which was a uh, a particular sort of event that was organised by the papacy, uh, and it was an opportunity to um, uh, uh, get some kind of sort of benediction um, uh, from the Pope. Uh, So they head off, um, uh, Ludwig, two or three um, sort of servants, and they start off from their London house and they move first to Paris and then uh, they move to Rome. And uh, in Rome, um, uh, Mary starts uh, to, to be a little bit ill. So they decide to travel back. Um, they stop off in Lyon where they have to have a break because Mary is feeling incredibly ill. And uh, there they, uh, you know, a doctor prescribes bleeding and certain sort of uh, potions. Um, And once she has recovered uh, a certain amount of uh, uh, her spirits, they finally make it to Paris on the 12th of June, 1701. Uh, And they book into the Hotel Castile. And over the next week, uh, day by day, there are an extraordinary sequence of events, um, which would become the central uh, sort of focus of the later court case. Um, So she arrives on that Sunday. Uh, On Monday, she rests. uh, And uh, there is, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, uh, try and visit her. Um, uh, Her her servants and uh, Ludwig Fenwick um, start to ask around to see whether there is a doctor who could help her. Um, a part as part of the sort of um, uh, the English community in Paris, uh, on Tuesday uh, she is um, prescribed uh, an emetic, so a purgative in order to um, uh, to force her to uh, vomit out the sort of fever. Uh, And uh, she's given such a huge dose that uh, the the, the landlady of the the hotel gets extremely frightened and she's then uh, prescribed uh, something to, as it were, sort of combat that um, purging. On the next day, which is a a Wednesday, um, uh, she is prescribed opium. Um, uh, Because... um, uh, she is frightened about, uh, having a, another purgative, uh, Mary refuses, um, uh, sort of any food, um, during that day. And so it's not until the next day that, 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 the, the, the opium is actually, um, uh, given to her. It's first sprinkled upon a, a pair of poached eggs. Um, and uh, so, uh, she doesn't know that she's being dosed in this way. And then later on, Um, what the servants do is they um, get a bowl of strawberries and they take out the stalks of the strawberries and they put a little bit of opium into the flesh of the strawberry and put the stalks back in and then um, present uh, Mary with the plate of strawberries. So she is being drugged against her knowledge. During this week also, uh, she has been reacquainted with Ludwig Fenwick's brother, uh, a, a man called Edward Fenwick, uh, who um, she had met twice before as they prepared for their journey in England, and uh, he was there on the departure party in london um, and He thought that he had made a connection with Mary and so he had pursued her to paris and uh, in some ways uh, their their friendship uh, was 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 rekindled during this week by Friday uh she's feeling extremely weak, and she is given um uh, another dose of uh, laudanum uh, and she's also bled um, on her feet so uh, again her body is is much is made much weaker um, on Saturday morning, she wakes up and she finds Edward Fenwick in her bed and within three or four hours so before lunchtime they're married uh, they're married by Lodwick in the bedroom uh, with two um, uh, servants as their witnesses. Uh, And uh, this is, uh, in some ways, the sort of marriage or the sort of supposed marriage that then becomes um, uh, the, uh, the crisis of the rest of the narrative of the book.
1: I found the description of their vows so harrowing when she talks so quietly and says, "But that's how I married Sir Thomas," with, with such a quiet voice, it was a really affecting read. Um, one question I had is about the the treatments, and I say that in uh, quotation marks that she's given. Were these like normal treatments for the time? Um, was it normal for people to not know that they were being treated for these kind of maladies
2: well these these become the the sort of the, the the debate points in the court case which occurs 2 years later so so what happens is um 3 weeks later mary rushes back to london and denies the marriage had ever occurred and edward follows on claiming um uh, and demanding his conjugal rights and also starting to treat Um, Mary's inheritance as his own property. So he has now become the owner of of the estate and he starts uh, uh, demanding rents from uh, tenants and threatening evictions. So this builds up to uh, a massive court case which occurs in April um, 1703 in which the specifics of what happened in that hotel room uh, and what happened over the course of that week Becomes the legal debates uh, and the source of uh, sort of uh, witness statements and, um, uh, uh, in some ways, sort of counter arguments from uh, the prosecution and the defence. So what we what is revealed is is the doctor stands in the dock and sort of says, "Actually, I never saw Mary. I was only told about her condition." and yet i still prescribed um uh, uh the, the laudanum and the bleeding um which sounds extraordinary he then sort of uh gives his excuses this is what you would do if if it were a child um he is then asked um uh, uh you know how did he know how much um she was being dosed and and he sort of said uh I suspect the doses that were given were not so high that it would have made her deranged. But then again, uh, the the defence, on the other hand, uh, would argue that 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 she was drugged and she was poisoned and she was bled, and uh, as a result, she was no longer in control of 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 her faculties.
1: Mm. And this court case that you're talking about, this is the Queen's Bench, um, which is the highest court in the land. What's the outcome?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, there is this verbatim account of uh, uh, the trial, uh, which is part of the the Grosvenor Estate um, sort of archive. Um, And so you can sit down and you can read over the sort of course of the fourteen hours of the deliberations and uh, the the sort of statements and it's one of the most exciting pieces of sort of archival research I've ever done It's just thrilling to hear the argument and the counter argument and, and 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 uh, 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 that kind of thing then the uh, the, the presiding judge um, uh, Chief Justice Holt sums up the 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 case uh, and so you know he sort of turns to the jury and he sort of says these these are the important facts. They took half an hour to decide uh, uh, uh whether the 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 wedding had been legitimate um and they decided at four o'clock of the morning uh on on uh April uh the fourth that it had been a legitimate marriage, which means that the Grosner family lost their estate and uh, the estate was handed over to the Fenwicks. However, um, uh, that's not exactly what happened in the end. Um, the fact that it's called Grosvenor Square rather than Fenwick Square probably, um, uh, you know, is, is evidence enough that uh, in the end uh, there is another court case that occurs two years after um, at the Queen's bench at the Court of Delegates, which reverses um, uh, the decision that was made by um, uh, that jury. Um, uh, the the Court of Delegates, in some ways, is a sort of appeal court, which is made up of judges and bishops, um, and is uh, far more uh, involved in questions of the legitimacy of the marriage rather than the sort of uh, uh, the question of property. But obviously, one uh, was connected with the other. So, uh, the Court of Delegates. Um, finally decide that the marriage was illegitimate and Fenwick loses his right to the estate. And then within a matter of weeks, um, uh, Mary was legally defined as a lunatic by her family. And as a result, um, uh, uh, she lost her rights to her property, which was then put into the hands of guardians on behalf of her children. And she spends the last 25 years of her life a long way from her estate uh, living uh, uh, under the sort of uh, uh, protection of her guardians.
1: And my final question is, other historians have discussed Mary's life, but never to the extent that you've gone to. What was it about this story, this case that captures your attention and made you need to find out more?
2: I think there is a human element to it which uh, I just found so incredibly compelling. Um, the narrative, if you like, is is fascinating, but it's through that narrative that so many things that that, that sort of interest me about that sort of period um, comes to rest um, and, and, and is, is, is sort of uh, sort of brought into light. Such things as the development of London itself, um, but that the idea of property, um, you know, I felt also that that that, that very strongly that um, uh, uh, you know wanting to uh, sort of think about questions of madness and qu- questions of property and also uh, questions of of uh, sort of religion and how those sort of fit in and in in some ways you know. Uh, Mary is 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 a fascinating character in that she's the kind of person who is often ignored um uh, that you know uh, uh, that, that that I still think that there's plenty of work to be done in uncovering lives like Mary's both of her class but also um uh, you know the fact that that that, that her, so much of her life is shrouded in silence doesn't mean that she was silent Uh, And I wanted to sort of try and see what I could hear um, by going through the archives, going through the land contracts, going through um, the wider contexts in which she lived. Because, you know, we are still at this moment uh, in which we're trying to decide whose stories should be told. Um, and, And, you know, I think Mary was, on the one hand, an incredibly privileged woman, but I think, on the other hand, there are other things that, 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 that come out and are drawn out through her life uh, which, which, which tell us so much about that period and, and also, uh, you know, the, the injustices that still continue.
0: That was Leo Hollis. His new book, Inheritance, The Lost History of Mary Davies, a story of property, marriage and madness, is out now published by One World. You can find a link in the episode description. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for the next episode in our series on Britain's Greatest Prime Ministers.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane.